We give you thanks, Lord, for your word. We would be lost if you did not give us instruction that you spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and through the apostles. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for how you've communicated this revelation of Christ to us in the scriptures. And thank you that tonight we get to together come to a celebratory milestone that you have taken us faithfully as a church through your Old Testament twice now. Make us those who keep your words, those who live out the story of the gospel, and not those who only know or have lots of notes in our Bibles. You, Christ, are our King of glory. You are the eternal Son of the Father, and you came and overcame the sting of death, and you opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. So come, Lord, make haste to help us so that we may be numbered with your saints when you return. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. So did anybody remember that this is the night we finished the Old Testament? Yay! And that's really cool, because this is the second time Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks has gone through the Old Testament. I, the very first time I spoke um, before this congregation... I don't know if any of you were here then. <laughs> I might be the longest. We were 2016. The very first. No, it was not 2016. Um, I This was when Dr. Bramson was part of the Bible study, and when it was a Bible study. And um, they had me come and teach the Ten Commandments. So I dropped down from youth group, and I taught the Ten Commandments. My dad snapped a picture of it, and I have the picture of me in a little black polo holding my King James Version Bible. I taught youth group from the King James back in the day. I am that old. Um, That cool. (laughs) Uh, And I remember Pastor Mike was all impressed, and he sent a copy to Pastor Chuck Smith. He sent a CD. Back then we did CDs. He sent a CD to Chuck Smith, said, listen to what my youth pastor did. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard it, and I would have been embarrassed if he did, because I opened the sermon up with a joke about adultery. (laughs) It had a point, and it served a purpose, but that's also what happens when you ask a 20-year-old, maybe I was 19, actually, to... um, you're used to a youth group, so anyways. What? A theme? Adultery? Nope. Bail bail out. Okay. I'll pull up. Um anyway, so that was the first time around and that took some time. The second time around I was um uh not leading youth ministry anymore and I was Pastor Mike's assistant and so he and I I want to say it was like 50-50. I think he and I taught through the Old Testament half and half. And then when we hit the minor prophets, he officially moved off the mountain. And I started teaching every week. Um, So I've done the last almost half of the Old Testament without him. He bailed on me. Just kidding. 
Um, so here we are. So Chronicles. And of course, if you're confused um, and you've forgotten, the reason um, we're at the end is because we've gone through the Old Testament through the Hebrew order. The way they ordered it is Chronicles is at the end. So that's where we are. You can turn to Chronicles chapter 28. This is where we left off. And we're going to finish it tonight. Second Chronicles 28. Um, I'm also having Tyler, Glenn, and Richard Morris teach tonight as well. We kind of split up the kings. So I will take you guys through Hezekiah. Tyler will take you through Manasseh. And um, Richard will take us through Josiah. And then I'll come back and talk about the guys that brought the ship down. Um, and that'll close the Old Testament. Um, before we get there, um, we had Labor Day this Friday. Do we have anyone who has served in our veterans? I'm sorry, yeah, Veterans Day, not Labor Day. Veterans Day this Friday. Do we have anybody who served um, in our congregation? You did? My doctor did. Your, yeah, your husband did. And yes, Jim, thank you, Jim. We salute you, sir. That's it? Jim. Wow. All right. Well, thank you, Jim. <laughs> Jim Sunday. Um, okay. Second Chronicles. Let's go. 28. What if every time you open the Bible, the books got rearranged randomly? <laughs> I heard some groans, and that's exactly what I think we would feel. What if every time you open the Bible, they were different order? You had to go hunt for them. Some of us feel like that's the way the Bible's every time we open it. You'll get there. Don't worry. They are in an order, and there's a sense in it. But what if they changed all the time? And Psalms is not in the middle anymore. And you don't know if it went to the right or the left, and you got to hunt for it. What if the chapter numbers got all messed up? And when you went to John 3, it said John 17... And so you had to find out what chapter John 3.16 went to. <laughs> what If that was the case and there was no order to the scriptures, it would be really hard for us to navigate our way through it, make sense of it, and appreciate that the narrative is here and it stays there. And I can find it and I can access it. And I know, I know, I may not remember the chapter number and verse, but I know it's on the bottom right side of the page in Philippians. You know what I mean? Um, and then when um, you're in a different Bible, you're like, I swear it's in Philippians. I, I promise it is. I, I can't find it, though. We need our Bible. And we get familiar with the order of our text. This is to pick up from last week. We saw that in chapter 27, Jotham was a successful king because it said he ordered his ways before the Lord. And we want to pick up that theme of ordering our ways before the Lord. We need order. We need structure before the Lord. Because if we're not intentional in the way we live before him, um, then the world is intentional about the way it wants us to live. And we will slip into that because our natures are corrupt and our natures are not by default strong enough to do everything that God wants us to do. We're weak and easily led astray because our hearts are cracked. As well intended as they may be, there are cracks in which we get bad ideas slipping on in. So Hezekiah is going to follow the Lord's order. 
but before him we have Ahaz in chapter 28. And Ahaz sounds like Ahab because he's really evil. He is a bad, bad king. He is the worst. In fact, I will go as far to say, this is just me on a limb, so take it or leave it, um, that Ahaz is the one who sets in motion irreversible events for Israel. He is so wicked and evil that this is where God's like, they've sealed their fate. It's just a matter of time. So Ahaz in verse 2, verse 1, middle verse 1. He did not do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals. And he those are gods, other gods. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings to the high places on the hills and under every green tree. So this is the first king in Judah, the southern righteous kingdom that steeps this low. And the valley of the son of Hinnom is a very important place. This is where they did the child sacrifices was in the valley of Hinnom. Um, and the Valley of Hinnom gets translated to the Greek Gehenna. And Gehenna is what Jesus uses when he talks about hell. That's what he's referring to. So when he's describing hell to the people, he says, he uses the word Gehenna because it brings this valley into their minds where there's child sacrifice. And then later, um, this valley gets used as a garbage heap. So it, Valley of, of Hinnom, of Hinnom, um, Hinnom, Gehenna, there you go, it's all of it together. Um, that valley is not good news, and Ahaz shows us why. So he does terrible things. Verse 16, at that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help because, oh, you know, Ephraim, the northern brothers of Israel, are coming down to attack Judah and Jerusalem. And he's like, we need help. So he calls upon Assyria, who's going to annihilate the kingdom north of him. And Nanny's going to create, they're going to create ruckus. Um, he called, so he didn't trust in the Lord. Um, and when Tiglath-Pileser comes, the king of Assyria, he pays him all this money, right? He loots the temple because that's where a lot of the, tr- the treasury that's not under budget is. So he loots all of that and gives it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria says, thank you, I'm not helping. And so he's left on his own. And in verse 22, we see, in the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, the same King Ahaz. Yep, that's right. It could get worse. The same guy. (laughs) He is in distress. And you think in times of distress, you'd repent, but not Ahaz. Ahaz says, nope, I'm going to be even more faithless. God won't help. When God turns his back on you, you turn your back on God. That's his philosophy. It's not going to work well. Four, he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. This is the end of verse 24. He just full on closed, chained up the doors of the house of the Lord. And made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. So, now we have one Starbucks up here, right? But down the hill, there's a lot more coffee shops everywhere. And just imagine that instead of that, instead of gas stations and coffee shops, the fuel for two different things, um, you have little altars all over. This is now where he's taken the kingdom of Judah. And so when he died, the end of verse 27 says, they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. So you may remember from last week, 
the bad kings were not buried with the kings. They are like, ugh, you don't count. And so Ahaz is dying in terrible state. But now, grace. God will let, allow these patterns, and you'll see this, um, of to the rest of these kings, of a really terrible low, and then he brings someone to give the people salvation, let the remnant respond, and then it's going to go low again. And so we're just at this topsy-turvy, like the pendulum is swinging to its extremes, and it's at the point where the pendulum's about to swing right off. That That's where we're at. So we're seeing one of the worst. Now we're going to see one of the best. So you know you're at the end when things be, hit their extremes. Lord have mercy on our country. So chapter 29, Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem and his mother's name, remember the good kings get their mamas mentioned because they're playing a big role in this. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. Now it's likely that the mother would actually have a seat next to the king in the throne room. Um, that's why they're in mention because they are influential. And um, you'll notice uh, Solomon. Solomon had um, Bathsheba sitting next to him when when there was a request. Um, or was it David? I can't remember now. But it's at the beginning of Kings. Um, whoever's on the throne in that scene, um, Bathsheba is there, and that's they they ask her um, to tell the king that this is happening. So sometimes the mother was sort of the one you went to first if the king was busy. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. Now in verse 3, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, so the first thing that Hezekiah does, he undoes what Ahaz did. He says he opened the doors to the house of the Lord and repaired them. And so he sends the Levi, he reinstitutes the Levites and the priests and gives them instruction, cleanse the temple, ritz, rededicate this to the Lord. And so the priests come to him in verse 19. And they say all the utensils that King Ahaz discarded in his reign when he was faithless, we have made ready and have consecrated. And behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. Hezekiah, temple's ready. Let's do this. So Hezekiah now restores the worship to the temple. And in verse 20 on, we see that the people begin to bring sacrifices. They're going to offer up sin offerings to cleanse uh, themselves, the temple, because what Ahaz had done, those were years of darkness. It's almost like an, I almost hate to say this. It's kind of like an exorcism in a way. Um, They just want to cleanse the darkness of the land and rededicate everything to God. Um, it's not as quite as extreme as an exorcism. That's why I hesitate. Um, but then we see in verse 29, when the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshiped. Of course, that's what actually the word worship in Hebrew and Greek means is to prostrate oneself, is to bow down. It doesn't mean to sing. It doesn't mean to read the Bible or to pray. It means to prostrate oneself. Now, other those are other ways to worship, but the primary meaning is prostration. Uh, sh- uh, shaka is to prostrate, and oh boy, I'm not doing well on the top of my head. Um, proskuneo in the New Testament, it's to prostrate oneself. So Hezekiah, verse 30, the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. David and Asaph are the primary writers of the first two books of the Psalms. 
So we see that he is, he is asking that we sing their words. We're singing the Psalms. And they sang praises with gladness and they bowed down and worshiped again. Okay. And so then in verse 36, Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had prepared for the people for the thing had come about suddenly. This re, this reopening the temple and bringing worship back faced almost no obstacles is what it's saying. This was an easy thing. And so they thank the Lord. He's in this. Now in chapter 30, so he opens the temple doors. He restores worship. The people are re, once again offering their offerings to God. Now he says, wait a minute. Let's do the festivals again. We haven't done these for a while, so they're going to celebrate Passover. But the problem is, is that you just cleansed the temple. And so by the time they're done with that, the date of Passover has passed. Passover is in the first month. And now, if you're going to celebrate Passover, you need to consecrate more priests and Levites so that you can do this appropriately. There's not enough for the people. So um, they, they wait till the next month. They pretend the second month is the first month. And so they do Passover on the same day they would have, only it's the second month. So in verse 2, this is chapter 30, verse 2, the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at that time. It tells you what I just told you. They didn't have enough priests and so forth. Now, in verse 5, uh, verse 5, they, they send out proclamation to even the, uh, the northern tribe. They send they, the northern kingdom. They send out proclamations to all God's people. And then at the end of verse 5, we see, For they had not kept the Passover as often as prescribed. Well, it was it was prescribed on the first month of every year. So we don't know how often or not often they did, but it was not as often as prescribed, meaning it was not an annual celebration. And so Hezekiah wants to bring order once again back to the people. We will celebrate this every year. Because if we don't celebrate this every year as something on our calendar, we're going to eventually say, we'll get to it when we feel like it. And then in time, you're going to get busy and you're not going to feel like it. And that's how this happens. So they're going to reorder themselves around the calendar that God gave them. And they're going to celebrate Passover. Now, Passover for the Christian is Easter. East, in fact, in the Eastern church, they still call it, they don't call it Easter. They call it Pascha, which is the Greek for Passover. So um, they actually just still call it Passover. And it's, Boy, shame on us if we just celebrate Easter when we feel like it. Uh, Okay. So he calls the people in verse 6, O people of Israel, return to the Lord. This is a wonderful time of the whole nation to be healed. And then um, at the very end of verse 9, we read, For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. And we must remember that we confess our sins every week. We get to return to him every week. Every, By the way, every Sunday is a little Passover. I don't know if you know that, but this is the reason Christians worship on Sunday is because we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Our Passover lamb has brought us life. And so we receive communion. It reminds us of the Passover. We celebrate on Sunday because this is our weekly Passover. <clears throat> and um, it's, it's a tradition for 2,000 years for Christians to fast on Friday, 
which is good. It's mimicking Good Friday. So every week we redo Holy Week. We redo Passover. If, if we choose to, um, we can fast on good, on the Friday and then we celebrate the resurrection on Sunday. Um, but, but we, we confess, we gather and we confess our sins and we must remember that God is gracious and he's not here going, yep, I know what they're going to tell me already. They always say this. He's not like that. He's, he is, he is so happy to see us returning to him and saying, yep, we have messed up. Even if it's again, he says, I'm going to heal you. Let me into your heart, but we must return to him. And so they do this. And now in verse, <clears throat> this is interesting, in verse 18, um, we'll start in verse 17. For there were many in the assembly, this is now Passover, they're celebrating. There were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves properly. Now you might remember in the law, there's all kinds of things that make you unclean and you can't really celebrate the religious festivals. Um, Weird things. Like, well, if you touch a dead body, for one. But there's other things that made you unclean. So some of them were not able to consecrate themselves. And um, so therefore, the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. So the Levites, whose job is not always to be doing the slaughtering, step in because there's a shortage of things, of people going on. And, um, they're doing things for the things that the people normally do. They're doing for them because some of them aren't clean. They're like relearning the whole process. This is what I'm trying to point out. It's messy. They're like, we haven't done Passover in a while. How do we do this? <laughs> so they're like trying to get back in the flow of this order. And verse 18, for a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, that's the rebellious tribes above Jerusalem. They had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. They're not supposed to be eating it because they're not properly prepared. But Hezekiah sees that this is a learning experience. This might take us a couple years to master. So Hezekiah, I love this. They're like, you sometimes think the Jews are like, we have to do it right or God's going to smite us. Not at all. Hezekiah is totally different. He says this. Hezekiah had prayed for them saying, May the Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of clean, of cleanness. Okay, yep, we're breaking the protocol. The liturgy isn't quite right. But God, be gracious to us because the people's heart is there and we're trying and we're learning this. Now, I don't think Hezekiah's heart is to say, throw out all the order because it's not necessary anyways. God can just pardon. Um, no, he recognizes that there's an importance to the orders God's given them. But sometimes we have to know where we're at and just say, Lord, see our struggles. And he's pleased with our honesty. I heard the story of um, of someone who, who was too tired to pray, um, but he was he was zealous in keeping prayer every evening before he went to bed. But he was so exhausted. He's this pastor. He had this evening service. He's just drained, right? And all his kids were keeping him up late. And this isn't me, I promise. Although, <laughs> although I have, I will be honest, I've adopted this once I heard the story. Because there's just times when he was like, I can't do it. And so that's what he prayed that night. For 30 minutes, because that was his normal prayer time, he for 30 minutes paced in his room to stay awake and said, Lord, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Lord, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Lord, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Is that ideal? No. He would prefer to have his orderly prayer, but sometimes it's coming before God admitting that we're poor in spirit that pleases him more than being right. 
And so Hezekiah leads them into their poverty here. Lord, we don't know what we're doing. Have mercy on us. And so in verse 20, the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. Now that's an interesting phrase. Were they getting sick? What was going on? Is it because they were eating the Passover unworthily? Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11? Mm-hmm. Who, by the way, says that Christ is um, our, our Passover lamb. And then he talks about communion. And he says, look, some, this is why some of you are sick, because you eat communion in an unworthy manner. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if there isn't a connection here. And that maybe if people were doing this out of order, there were constant, I don't know what that would mean, but something's happening. And then Hezekiah saying, Lord, we're doing our best. And then the Lord's like, oh, okay, I'll heal them. Interesting. But, um, yeah, it's just interesting. I could go, I could elaborate all night on my theories, but that's not our point. So then in verse 21, there's a phrase that says great gladness. They kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with great gladness. And then in verse 23, Then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. Passover's over, and they're like, this is so amazing, let's keep this going. And Hezekiah's like, yeah! (laughs) And of course, if they ran out of wine, then Hezekiah would just transform water to wine, right? (laughs) Um, We do, though, I mean... That is what Christ does when the wedding feast went beyond its bounds of wine. He supplied it for them. I do wonder if God, who knows, you know, if they would have run out of things and God's like, hey, keep going, my people, keep partying. That, by the way, is the new heavens and new earth. This is where we will continue to celebrate the presence of God and we will not run out of food, of joy, of uh, the new wine. New wine is a symbol of the coming kingdom. So, um, so they kept it for another seven days with gladness. And then it talks about all these offerings that were brought. But then in verse 26, um, you see the word right before verse 26 is that they rejoiced. And then in verse 26, there was great joy. Do you get the theme? There's a lot of rejoicing and joy going on. Um, and for since the time of Solomon and David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. That's not to say they never kept Passover. It's to say that there has never been a Passover like this since then. They're dating back centuries now. This is the last time we experienced Passover like this. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people. So they're cleaning up, right? The party's over. The priests give the blessing. We know what the blessing would be. It's the blessing we give at the end because that's what Numbers says. The priests at the end bless the people. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. Um, they blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. They order their ways before the Lord, the way the Lord asked them to order it. They keep the festivals God asked them to keep. They find that there's great joy in doing so. There's great unity when the people come together and do this. And now um, they, they find in doing what God asked them to do, they find great joy. Um, brothers and sisters, like, in my growing up, um, Easter was just like the Sunday that was like all the others, except you get a sermon on the apologetics of the resurrection. This is how we know. That was my experience. Um, but boy, our last two years have been joyful celebrating Easter with you in a, um, in a very, in a much more like let's just follow 
the historical patterns of Easter. And I think it's, I, I relate to this passage, this of this Passover, because I think that we have, Lord's blessing our mess. We're not super ordered, but he's, he's blessing our Passover. And I cannot wait to celebrate um, Easter and Passover again with you guys. It's the one I look forward to every year. Christmas as a kid, Easter as an adult. <laughs> it is the grown-up Easter. Did someone say something? Did I? Oh, I thought someone shot something out. All right. Uh, but their prayer, it, it goes to his holy habitation in heaven. Like, that's really an amazing point, and you'll see why this matters in a moment. Um, the reason that this Passover was really important for them to celebrate is because we're going to see a Passover happen in just in a moment here. Another Passover happens, and it's like the Exodus Passover. And I believe that God is going to deliver Israel from this, the, the threat that's about to come because they celebrate this Passover. They order their lives before God the way he's asked them to. And so he is going, he hears their prayers that they raise before him. And now he's going to answer in their most desperate hour. <coughs> Why should we order our ways before the Lord? Because you never know when Assyria is going to camp out around your heart. Wow. And that's what happens next. So Hezekiah orders the priests in chapter 31, and it says, just as David did. You might remember there's a few chapters where David had a detailed order of the temple. He does that. He follows it. Um, but now in chapter 32. After these things, so after Passover and the ordering of the temple, these acts, after these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking he would win them for himself. Assyria has just annihilated the northern kingdom. Assyria is now coming for Judah. This looks like it's the end. And based upon, look, if if they had followed the ways of Ahaz in chapter 28 and just kept that path, I think it's a no-brainer. Assyria wipes them out. But instead, Israel will survive for about another hundred years and Babylon will eventually take him out because of Hezekiah choosing to order the kingdom before the Lord. So, in verse 7, um, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sends messengers to Jerusalem. They stand in all the busy places where everybody can hear them. And the messengers proclaim in the common tongue of the people, out loud, messages for the king. Because they want to terrify everyone and make them doubt their king, Hezekiah. So they say things like this out loud. In verse 7, um, Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 7 is Hezekiah's speech first. Then we'll get to the messenger's speech. Okay, so verse 7, Hezekiah says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an army of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. The Lord, the the Lord of hosts is a common phrase in the Hebrew scriptures. The Lord of hosts is what Hezekiah is referring to. He has his own army of angelic beings, and they have zero problem dealing with this army of flesh. Okay, so now the messengers of the king of Assyria, verse 10, they say this to frighten the people. Thus says Sennacherib, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver us from the land of the king of Assyria? Basically, like, 
dude, he's lying to you. Hezekiah wants you. He's, he's up there partying every night while you guys are about to die. Of course, it's a lie, but that's what the enemy does. It makes us distrust our leaders. Um, so this is spiritual warfare. This is the enemy trying to sow discord, trying to cause them to flee their stronghold in the Lord. So he then says, look, we defeated all the other gods, so how much more will we defeat your God? And then in verse 18, yeah, that just says he shouted it in the language of everyone so they could hear and they were terrified. But now verse 20. Verse 20. Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, that is the Isaiah, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. Now, we just read that during their Passover, their prayers ascended to the Lord's dwelling place. Do these prayers have the same power if Hezekiah just suddenly, oh, we're in trouble, start praying? I mean, they've already forged, by ordering their lives before God, they forged this communion where they're, they, they talk to him and it happens. And now king and prophet are united in prayer. This is powerful stuff. And in verse 21, The Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. Overnight, they die. You you read more about this in Isaiah itself. Um, Thousands, hundreds of thousands of Assyrians gone in a night. This is Passover. The angel of death comes over the Assyrian army. And because the people in the city had kept the Passover, the ones outside the city are the victims of Passover, just like Egypt all over again. And so we must keep our lives ordered before God and keep his fasts and his feasts because these order us in a way that then he says, you're walking in my order. I can do all kinds of deliverance for you now. Because Hezekiah keeps the Passover, God keeps the Passover. This is amazing deliverance. So then Hezekiah um, ends up dying in pride. He gets sick, thinks he's a prayer warrior, prays for healing, gets healed. But now everyone wants to come see the miracle. And he gets to his head. And he allows, it's very brief, but it's literally the author alludes to it. He says, go read Isaiah if you want more on this. But he says that the Lord tested his heart when the Babylonians came to praise him. He's like, oh, I'll show you everything we have. Well, Almost a century later, the Babylonians are going to take it all away. Uh, so, yep, Hezekiah dies. A little bit of a glitch, but he dies with honor and distinction, and we have God's stamp of approval on him. Now, Tyler's going to take us through Manasseh in chapter 33. And this will be something fun and new for me. Uh, I wrote it all down, so that way y'all are getting the sermon that I plan to give before I got here. If I don't write it down, I'll make a new one on the spot. So, (laughs) But yeah, so we're picking up with Manasseh now, and I think in the spirit of what the chronicler intended, I think he shows that you can get this thing back on track, um, and you can get your ways ordered before God, and then you can fall off again. And, and, and what do you do whenever you fall off? And, and I think Manasseh really tries to minister to the people in that. So we have Manasseh. He's God's prodigal son. He started off as all sinners do. He was miserable, but too proud to admit that he needed God to save him. 
He rivaled the wickedness of Ahaz. Everything that it said Ahaz did, it said Manasseh imitated it. And Ahaz was an enemy of God. And he did every wicked thing you could do. He was too blind to see past his own nose. And there wasn't a single ounce of love in him. He forgot his heritage, his glorious heritage. He forgot that in his blood was that of the Lion of Judah, the man after God's own heart, and the greatest king to live, that of David. Yet he acted like Ahaz, the worst king to ever live in Judah. He built shameful altars to appease demons. He forgot that the God of gods who created everything had promised to raise him and his family as his own children. What a fool. What a fool would try to make such promises from God void by profaning the very house of God with demonic trash. He forgot that his seed will beget the Messiah who will save the whole world. So he sacrificed his sons to demons that would gratify his selfish will. He was a man void of love, consumed with building his own mini Babylon to make slaves of the world underneath the the thumb of death and the Satan. He literally strove with all his might to create hell on earth. The scripture said there was not another nation as wicked as Judah during the time of Manasseh. But God showed his patience. We can thank God for his providence for sinners. For we know he could see the righteous root down in Manasseh's heart. And and he knew how to bring it out. Because after all, he doesn't just give everyone this opportunity to keep on going in this type of wickedness. He crushed Saul immediately after, right? And while the story doesn't tell us how long it took him to repent, we see his son Amon as well. And he ruled for two years, and God saw nothing worth protecting. There was nothing to stir his jealous protection for the faithful ones. And so Amon fell in two years. And so thank God that he saw past Manasseh's vile actions. He looked for a man worthy of ruling his people in Manasseh. And not only that, thank God for his wisdom, for he knew the perfect scheme to draw out the blessed soul-healing repentance of Manasseh, thus transforming him into the man that could reign in righteousness over his people. And so may we deny our opportunity to test the patience of God any longer than we already have. Shouldn't we, who proclaim every week the Beatitudes, Shouldn't we have no problem with confessing our sins? Don't we read, blessed are the poor of spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? We should be more than willing to mourn our sins, because Christ said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When did Christ introduce himself to us? Was it not in a sweet moment when we made our first confession of sin? when we cried for healing and were met by the healing revelation of God's loving acceptance for a humble sinner in spiritual poverty. 
We know we haven't been perfect since then. So please, thoroughly humble your heart. May we all thumbly, humbly, thoroughly humble our heart and make a sincere confession with faith in God who will greet his child with love again and again. Make sincere confession because it transforms and recreates you and makes you heaven bound. Yet we surely need to look further for explanation and guidance and repentance. After all, God asked Manasseh to undergo repentance. He sent his prophets, the scripture says, and it did not work. Sometimes the command doesn't work because we are suffering from spiritual blindness. We are hard-hearted. We have our eyes, but we do not see. We have ears, but do not hear, as Christ said. Manasseh could not even conceive of humility before God. Nonetheless, God knew how to open the eyes of Manasseh. God was a master at applying the healing sense of humility to a sinner that can make him wise again. Thus, God said, I'm sure, So, Manasseh, you want to be a seed of Babylon. Let me show you what it's like to live in Babylon. However, you will not see from the perspective of a king, but you will see as a slave of Babylon. After all, Manasseh already was enslaved to that spirit that governs Babylon. So it was fitting, as the scripture says, for the chains of Babylon to go on to Manasseh and for him to be taken by the servants of darkness to walk upon the way of thorns to Babylon. That's what the scripture says, that he walked upon thorns to Babylon. And I'm sure we are thankful the chronicler spared us the details because we would grow pale and sick by truly beholding the full manifestation of Satan's kingdom come and his will done on earth as it is in Babylon. It is something we would never willingly approach unless we were blind, unless we were hard-hearted, or unless we were dragged by the servants of evil themselves. Yet it is not too far of a jump to think that we may know a thing or two about what Manasseh's visit to Babylon was like, right? Um, It seems more and more familiar that we can sense it just by looking around at our own society right now. We can feel Babylon's fingers choking out Christendom from our nation. Simultaneously, we're faced, the face of America is ominously starting to reflect the face of Babylon. I wrote a section about this, but I'm going to make like the chronicler and spare these details. (laughs) Nonetheless, we are the church. And we have authority over this situation. That's what Christ told us. I gave you the keys. Whatever you bind will be bound. Whatever you loose will be loosed. So why does it continue? After all, our community, is our community any different from the rest of the world? Um, I work with a lot of people, and I know that VOE, which is just a little drive down from us, our church, and Crestline, which is even closer, is actually known for having easily and readily accessible street drugs. People move up here for that, because that excites them. 
And so how can we become the bridge to healing that? How do we become the mechanism of renewal and recreation that Christ designed the church to be? We can repent. However, what if we look into our hearts and we don't find the inspiration to? There's just hard darkness that produces no sense of poverty of spirit, not even a squeak to utter. I dare say that we ask God to open our eyes to the ways of Babylon in our midst. I say that we ask God to open our eyes to the fruits of our own actions as people who can build Babylon. We see that Manasseh went to Babylon. When we see that Manasseh went to Babylon, I'm sure he suddenly saw in his mind how his fathers, like David, had contributed to building the city of God and that it was abundant with the love of God. Meanwhile, his eyes saw Babylon, a world dominated by the selfish hatred of demons. And finally, it dawned on him that he had forsaken a truly wonderful privilege to serve and build the city of a good God. And he was utterly humiliated when he saw the world he was building through his intercourse with the demons, through his imitation of Ahaz, the worst king to ever be built, to ever grace Judah. So the scripture states in verse 12, And when Manasseh was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly, as we saw in that prayer, before the God of his fathers. And he prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into the kingdom. The scripture doesn't give us details, but it's as if the change just fell off, fell off, and Manasseh like caught a, a lift or an Uber right back to um, his home country. And we don't get those details, but nonetheless, Scripture affirms at the end of verse thirteen that Manasseh knew that the Lord was God, and it was surely a miraculous deliverance. For repentance is the beginning of our deliverance. Honest, sincere, humiliating repentance is a gift from God. Because you get a taste of truth. You get to smell the scent of your sin and how it is rancid. And you finally come into agreement with God that you hate sin. And you finally get a taste to see that God is good and merciful and kind towards mankind. Because he is moved by our repentance and immediately moves to comfort his children with his fatherly compassion. He sits ready like the father of the prodigal son who runs toward the child who was lost but is now found and who was blind but now sees. He celebrates this child. So thank God for his compassion For he heals sinners and he transforms their purpose. Because Manasseh was transformed from a man that profaned the city of God to a man who built up the city of God. He was transformed from an attacker 
to a defender of God's providences as he put commanders in every city, military people who could defend who could defend his people from the attacks of enemies. And he was alleviated. Manasseh was alleviated from his selfishness and instead was captivated with peace and thankfulness that was always directed towards God, going to his temple and offering sacrifices often. And all of this, as we see after Manasseh's repentance, was a fruit of his repentance. And so I'll leave with this. Have you been established in peace and thankfulness towards God, as Manasseh shows, as Christ said he would leave with us? Are you zealous to protect up and build up the city of God that is his church? Or are you trapped in indifference? Are you distracted? Are you over building up the church because it's keep on, it's too messy, it's too wobbly? If your soul is in a state of lack, then refresh it with the dew of repentance. Do not fear to make a brutally honest assessment of your actions, to call yourself a sinner before God, and even make an elaborate case of it. For God came to the world seeking sinners, and he delights to give them the blessings of heaven. He delights to stir their zeal for the adventure of renewing the earth through the collective effort of a church that is guided by his spirit and obedient to his commands. But it starts with mustering our strength in repentance. And so now Richard can take over. So, excuse me. So Ahaz, really, really bad. Hezekiah, good. Manasseh, bad, but better ending. For him, anyway. And then finally, well, not finally, but now I get to talk about Josiah, which was an encouragement to me as I was studying him this week. And because of the dark times that Israel was going through, and we'll hear more about under Josiah, um, and the parallel with our times that we live in, and we need encouragement, and I think he is that for us. Let's read verse 1 and 2. We're in chapter 34. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. So does that raise any questions? Eight years old, and he's walking with the Lord. How come? Didn't have much of a... Well, he had... Directly, his father was pretty bad. They got rid of him pretty quickly. Um, Not sure exactly why, but um, uh, he went. And so then uh, Josiah... So how was, how was it that this young eight-year-old was already walking with the Lord? Well, I was thinking about that. The text, and also in Second Kings, doesn't tell us. But um, his mother, his name is Jedida. Jedida means beloved of the Lord. So that gives us probably a good clue that she was probably the primary influence as the mother on, on Josiah. 
Now, Manasseh may have had some input. Manasseh, Manasseh only died when um, Josiah was six, two years before he ascended to the throne. He died, and um, of course, as Tyler has indicated, Manasseh repented. So it's possible that he also had some teaching and sitting down with Grandpa and saying, you know, I really made a complete mess of everything, but uh, follow the Lord, and who knows. But I like particularly to see, think of the influence of Jedidah, and I think we see that earlier, and, and Brandon mentioned earlier about when the good kings, the mother is mentioned, and I think that part of that is obviously to do with the fact of the influence that that, that mother had. So what a what an example to us and a reminder how important mothers are when it comes to young children starting early to um, develop their children to be uh, people of God. So. Where are we at this time? Idol worship is still everywhere. Manasseh did a few things uh, towards the end after he repented. Um, but idol worship is everywhere. That means idols in public places. That means idols in the homes. We see that in, in many parts of the world. Uh, you see private um, idols in homes, and this was certainly true here. We see a lot of uh, occupations available to people, mediums, spiritists, um, so lots of uh, lots going on that was still very much uh, contrary to walking with the with the Lord. So where are we? We are 290 years beyond Jeroboam splitting the kingdom. We are 82 years from when the northern kingdom is is taken off by the Assyrians and just completely decimated. Um, only two tribes left: Judah and Benjamin. And we call them Judah, but and it's only half the size of the northern kingdom. So actually, from the original Israel, it's only a third of the size. So you can imagine how vulnerable they felt as a people with all of the nations around them. They have Egypt to the south. They have Assyria to the north. Still Philistia on the, on the west. And, of course, further north is this emerging empire called the Babylonians, which becomes the kind of killer blow for Israel at the end. So, and it's only 55 years until the exile is complete and the whole of Judah uh, is removed, the leaders particularly, um, and it's all over, for a while anyway. Um, And so we're at that point. Um, He's the 16th of the 21 kings, so, who were the good kings? Anyone remember? Yeah, all Judah. Huh? Judah. Yeah, Judah. Yeah. So, who were the good Judah kings? Remember how? There are five of them. We heard about one of them tonight. Huh? Jotham? Yeah, Jotham's one of them. Hezekiah, great, that's two. Josiah makes three. Jehoshaphat, and one more. Asa goes going quite back a bit. He was the first of the good kings. So only five out of 21, that's about a 25% success rate. Um, not very good. 
But maybe if we look back on our own kingdoms in this in this day and age, we we might find similar things. I don't know. Um, and then we have Jeremiah in the background. He's the major prophet. There are other prophets, but he's the major prophet trying to help turn Israel back to the Lord Yahweh. Verse 3. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. So now he's 20, and, sorry, now he's 16, and he's still dedicated to the Lord. Amazing, isn't it? 16, he's still going strong with the Lord. And as we read verses 3 and to, verses 3 to 5, we see... In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, poles, carved idols, and cast images. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles, the idols, and the images. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars, so he purged Judah and Jerusalem. So this is the first step in his program. And what we're going to see is that Josiah was very systematic and very purposeful in his goal. It wasn't a quick thing. It took a lot of years. And he starts off by getting rid of the idol, idols from the public places and getting rid of the people who were involved in all of that evil. And that that's his, takes him six years to do that. So it's quite a big operation, but he does it. He completes the task, and now he's, what, 26? Yeah, 26. My math is still okay. And then, in verse 8, we hear, in the 18th year of Josiah's reign, so now he's 26, yeah, I was right, um, to purify the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, son of Azalea, and Messiah to the ruler of the city with Joah, son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. So phase two now begins. He's, he's sorted out the idols. He's now going to start working with the temple. Judah's still, in a, as you can see, in a very bad state. The temple has to be repaired so that it can be then used. To, to start sacrifices again. And it's in the process of that, and we won't read the verses, but in the process of that, the people working in the temple come across what they call the Book of the Law. Um, it's not stated specifically how much of the, of the Old Testament it is. It certainly includes Leviticus and Deuteronomy because a little later it talks about curses. And blessings and curses, of course, are come up very strongly in those two books. So, um, and then they take it back to Josiah. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the Lord, law, he tore his robes. So it really brought home, I think, to Josiah how far Israel or Judah had turned away from the Lord. 
And so it also speaks, of course, in the curses, that if you do not follow the Lord, there will be judgment. It's, it's going to happen. So that's pretty scary for this young man. But So he decides to, to inquire of a prophet. What is actually, does all this mean and what is going to happen? So he sends the priest Hilkar and some of his other officials, find out what the Lord means for Israel or for Judah. And so they go to Huldah, a prophetess. Actually, we know Huldah. First time I'd actually, have you, do you know anybody called Huldah? We have a friend whose wife is Huldah. Um, and she was a prophetess, an important prophet in, in the land at this time. And so they ask her, so what does all this mean? 23, we hear her response. Let me find the right page. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people. All the curses written in the book that has been read in the presence of the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and provoked me to anger by all that their hands have made, my anger will be poured out on this place and will will not be quenched. So Josiah receives confirmation that judgment is coming and it's not reversible. And what is amazing to me about Josiah, and I think you start to really see his character over time coming out, is that despite, despite this pronouncement of doom, he proceeds to continue the process of restoring Israel to follow the Lord. And so he starts on his next program, which is to renew the covenant, and he cre- creates this, this ceremony where the people and he before God, renew the covenant with God. And he gets the people to pledge allegiance to Yahweh to follow his command. And then after that, phase three in his plan is to re-establish this temple sacrifices. Restored the temple, fixed it up, refurbished it, and then he's ready to start the temple sacrifices. So 31 years pass. In fact, in 2 Kings 23, it is said that there was no one more thorough than Josiah in removing idols from the land. So that very systematic and purposeful thing. So I think I learned a lot. I, it reminded me a lot of what, what, do I look, what do I need to look for in leaders now? What do we see? We see character, and we see a character, a character of this young boy, that went on through his life. He didn't, he didn't deviate. His character remained the same. And also you saw competence. The focus and the purposeful, purposefulness of Josiah comes through very clearly as he sets about to restore Judah to where it needed to be. And so I think that's a good reminder for me that when I look for leaders in the church, if I look for leaders in our nation, that we want character and we want competence but character first. And of course, we see in Paul, in talking about what are the qualifications to be an elder, what do we see? We see primarily character as being most important. So he's only 39 years old. He, he's reigned for 31 years. It looks as if 
He could go on for a long time, right? I mean, he's young. Sounds like he might have been healthy. But then something happens. And it has all to do with a city a long way away called Carchemish. Anyone know where Carchemish is? It's on the northern border of Assyria, which borders Assyria with Babylon. And Babylon is growing in power, and they're starting to really push on the Assyrians. Assyrians have really been diminished uh, by the Babylonians during this time. And so King Necho of Egypt, he doesn't want a powerful Babylon, so he's happy to go up and support Assyria to hold back Babylon. In geopolitical terms, you can see that, the, that he was actually probably quite far-sighted because Babylon, as we know, does become the regional power um, and becomes very dominant during that, for a period, and Assyria really kind of fades away. So King Necho wants to go up and help the Assyrians hold back the Babylonians. However, now we're in chapter 35 and jumping to verse 20. After all this, so all of the things that he's been doing, when Josiah had set the temple in order, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to find Carchemish on the Euphrates. And this is the important thing. Josiah marched out to meet him in battle. Notice Josiah, we don't hear that Josiah inquired of the Lord. We just, he says, who knows his motives? I mean, he knew that the Assyrians have basically destroyed two-thirds of the nation of Israel. Um, Maybe he was quite happy for the Assyrians to be beaten up by the Babylonians. For whatever his reasons, we don't really know. But he doesn't stop to think, he doesn't stop to ask the Lord. He's going to stop Necho from from going up because basically Necho has to pass by his western flank up through Philistia to get right across and up into northern Assyria. And so this this was land that Judah was kind of managing and keeping an eye on. So he didn't want Necho coming right up on the the western side of his uh, territory. Even um, Necho warns him, we read in verse 21, um, Necho sends messengers to uh, Josiah saying, what quarrel is there between you and me, O king of Judah? It is not you I am attacking at this time. I like that, attacking at this time. (laughs) Uh, But the house with which I am at war, Babylon. God has told me to hurry, so stop opposing God who is with me or he will destroy you. Josiah does not inquire of the Lord to see whether what Necho is saying is true. He goes out, he meets him on the battlefield, and he is mortally wounded, carried back to Jerusalem, and he dies. Very, very sad. I think, and that was really the thing that I did a lot of thinking about afterwards, was it's a reminder to us that um, we not only 
follow the Lord in terms of our behavior, moral behavior. But but whenever we think about what's going on around us and whether and what do we need to do to make where we live uh, the way we want it to be, whether we want our, the right kind of government and, po- and political system, um, is to be very, very careful how we engage in the political systems that are of this world and to make sure that if we are going to engage to influence events in our political situations, that we, the Lord is really, truly saying to us to do this. Because um, it's such a temptation for us to step out of faith and into, well, if only we did this, then that will stop them getting into power or etc. And, and before we know it, we've stepped outside the will of God. Uh, and um, the results could be pretty bad. So I was really encouraged overall by Josiah. He was so faithful, so focused, so purposeful. Uh, and I'm really, it really was an encouragement to me and a challenge uh, to also maintain my focus so that I am continue to walk with the Lord. Thank you. All right, let's finish this. Second Chronicles chapter 36. Um, Josiah was great. He had a bunch of J sons. They're all named with a J. It gets confusing. Uh, I've done a lot of study in Jeremiah, and it's still confusing for me. Um, Jeremiah is the prophet at these last days. Miserable, miserable call he had. Um, so Jehoahaz takes over after, but he uh, gets sacked by Egypt, and Egypt installs his brother Eliakim. They rename him to Jehoiakim, so it gets it confusing. Got Jehoiachin later, Jehoiakim, and um, they all. There's different rebellions that happen. So Jehoiakim is then uh, taken over by Jehoiachin. It's just a real quick series of kings sorted here at the end. And then lastly is Zedekiah. Zedekiah is put in place by Babylon themselves. Um, because they want to make sure that Judah is doing what Babylon wants. So Babylon's totally grown up, taken over, and they're just basically like, you don't wanna you don't wanna go to war if you don't have to, right? So you try to make sure a city does what you want them to do. So they put Zedekiah in office. You remember you're at the end because Zedekiah starts with a Z, the last king. And Jeremiah, much of Jeremiah's prophecies, uh, it's laced with a lot of narrative. And Jeremiah is pleading with Zedekiah throughout the book. It is God's will at this point that Jerusalem be destroyed. Surrender to Babylon and you will live. This is what God wants you to do. Surrender to Babylon. And Zedekiah keeps thinking, are you crazy? Surrender to the enemy. You're working for Babylon. And Jeremiah often got abused as a spy. Um, so, of course, they don't listen. And so the kingdom falls. Um, 36 verse 15. We have a summary here. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, Babylon, who killed their young men and the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old or aged. 
And he gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and the princes, and all these he brought to Babylon. So the temples looted. And he burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its places with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. And he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from his sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia that we read about in Daniel. We saw Persia take over Babylon. So that's the next empire. And when Persia came over, well, you'll see this in a minute. Verse 21, this all happened. They lose the land to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Israel didn't keep the Lord's orders. The seventh year was not a year of rest for the land. Um, the seventh day was not a day of rest for the people. So I'll make you, I'll make the land rest. I'll make the people rest. Boom. Prison out of the land. Go. They're resting. Now verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this is how Ezra opens. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people may go up, may may the Lord his God be with him, let him go up. And so closes the Hebrew Bible. This note of hope. We know that we have been exiled because we had obeyed God, but God has brought us back to rebuild his sanctuary. And so here the remnant hears the words of the chronicler and realizes we must learn from our history so that we can reach our glory. And these days of waiting, this ending note of hope, the temple will be rebuilt. The temple will be rebuilt. The temple will be rebuilt. And they build this little house. And in Haggai it says that they mourn because it is not like this temple of Solomon. But then Haggai declares the glory of this, the latter glory of this temple will exceed the former glory. Christ makes an allusion to this when he says to the Pharisees, something greater than Solomon's temple is here. And Christ brings the New Testament to fulfill this expectation at the end of the Old Testament that the temple will be rebuilt. But it's not with sticks and stones this time. It's with bones and flesh. Humans make up the house of God and we get to be part of this fulfillment. We are part of this long story of the Chronicles and the emphasis of the temple in this book is now reached its higher glory in you, brothers, sisters, in me, in the Spirit's work among us. Let's not follow the ways of the kings of the kings of Israel, but let's follow the ways of the kings of Judah who walked in the ways of David, that we can glorify his temple and let the Lord's glory shine through us. And so we will begin the New Testament in two weeks. Next week we have our messages on a couple of, a couple stories from old Christians of the past to encourage us in our new year um, and remind us of our destiny as God's people.
You hear us calling, you hear us calling, Abba Father.